John chapter 5. As you know, we have been going through John chapter 5, and it all began with the healing, you remember, of the lame man that created such a stir among the Jews. A lame man was healed on the Sabbath by Jesus Christ, created such a stir among them, and he used it as an opportunity to begin to preach to them a very important sermon about his deity. In fact, it is one of the most definitive expressions of his deity found anywhere in his teaching that we have here in John chapter 5. And so I've been identifying to you a seven-fold proof that we have here of his deity. And so far, we've worked our way down through five of them. We have seen that Christ reveals his deity here in his works. We saw that in verses 16 through 18. We see his deity revealed in his will as his works are one with the Father. His will is one with the Father. In verse 20, his intelligence, we saw, is one with the Father. In sovereignty, in verse 21, in divine honors, 22 and 23. In all these ways, we see the deity of Jesus Christ here in this passage. And that leaves two more things that we're going to look at that he brings before us here for our thinking. And that is that he is seen to be God in terms of his power to impart life. And we find that in verses 24 down through 26. And then the last thing is we see him revealed as God in his power to judge all men. So these are the things that are before us for this study, these last two things. And I think this section is a, a very critical one. For this reason, it answers some of the most important questions that can ever be asked in life. These statements on the part of Jesus clear up a lot of uncertainty in terms of the questions in the minds of men. You're familiar, I think, with the name Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther, in case you don't know, was a 16th century German reformer. And Luther used to say that nothing in the world caused so much misery as uncertainty. Now, if Luther was right, then the greatest misery of all must be caused by the uncertainty about what happens after death. You realize for thousands of years that philosophers and theologians to say nothing of the countless people who are neither, have wrestled with the question of what happens to you after you die. It is an inescapable question, and it's one that presses in on you the more the years roll by in your life. It becomes more and more important with every day that passes. A. A. Hodge, who is a commentator that I enjoy reading, he said, before any other knowledge attained by us in the compass of the universe, it is most essential for us to know what our Creator and Sovereign Lord intends to do with us after we die. Those are very insightful words. That is the great question. What does our Creator and Sovereign God intend to do with us as His creation, as His creatures after we die? That is the question that must be answered. And nobody can casually disengage himself or herself by simply saying, well, putting the question in this sense, where does mankind go after death? Or even, to put it this way, where do we go from here? But you see, eventually every human being must ask the question, where do I go when I leave this place? Where do I go? Nobody can just leave it casual in general. You've got to come down to where do I go from here? And there's a lot of various answers to that question. I think you know that. But I want to deal with a couple of those answers, if I could, for a few minutes. One of the answers that comes to where do I go when I leave here is this. We have no way of knowing for sure what happens after we die. That is one of the answers that's quite popular. In fact, this was the position taken by 16th century French philosopher Francois Rabelais. Although he had been, this man, both a Franciscan and Benedictine monk, each in turn, when he came down to his dying breath, 
This is what he had to say. I am going to the great perhaps. The great perhaps? I mean, Franciscan Benedictine monk, is that all it did for you? You're going to the great perhaps? You see, his dying breath asserted his belief that no one can know for sure where we're going after we die, what's going to happen. The 17th century political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, also an atheist, came down to his death and his dying breath shouting this, I am taking a fearful leap into the dark. He didn't know where he was going. He had no idea. Moving on in time toward the end of the 19th century, Robert Ingersoll, who was actually one of America's most eloquent agnostics and possibly could have run for president except for the fact he was just too outspoken on too many things. At his brother's graveside, Ingersoll said this, Life is a narrow veil between the cold and barren peaks of two eternities. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We cry aloud and the only answer is the echo of our wailing cry. That is what he said at the gravesite of his brother. In the last chapter of his book called Around the World in 81 Days, the British comedy actor Robert Morley wrote, If, as I have always thought, life is a party, then I should be leaving quite soon, mustn't I? I mustn't outstay my welcome. I'll just collect my shroud and be off. Where to exactly? Is there another party just up the road? That was his lighthearted approach to the idea that you cannot know where you are going after you die. So that is one answer to that great question. But another popular one is this, that we will cease to exist after we die. And that is the idea that human beings are annihilated in death, that they become extinct in death. And that theory has been around for a very long time. For example, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, you've heard his name? Aristotle, who died in 322 B.C., said that death was the most to be feared of all things, for it appears to be the end of everything. You become extinct, you go out of existence. The Roman writer Seneca, another familiar name, who died in New Testament times, said much the same thing. He said, there is nothing after death. In fact, death itself is nothing. It's the beginning of nothing. In our present century, the British philosopher, you may know this name, Bertrand Russell, was an eloquent spokesman for this idea. And in 1938, he asserted, man is the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought or feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All noonday brightness of human genius is there destined to extinction. Very popular belief that you go into extinction, you cease to exist after you die. A few years ago, a man by the name of John Benjamin wrote these words in a poem describing his thoughts when he was listening to the bells in the church outside of his hospital where he was laying in a bed waiting for an operation. He penned these words, intolerably sad and profound. Listen to them. St. Giles' bells are ringing round. Swing up and give me hope of life. Swing down and plunge the surgeon's knife. I, breathing for a moment, see death wing himself away from me and think, as on this bed I lie, is it extinction when I die? These are the questions that rack the human brain and heart. Do I become extinct when I die? Can I know what will happen when I die? Well, if you read the words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 5, verses 24 through 30, you will find that you can know very clearly all the details you need to know are here. I'd like you to read over them with me as I read them aloud to you. In verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The old King James uses a good word, damnation. I like that word not because it's pleasant, but because it's graphic. Graphic enough to pierce our hearts. Condemnation is the same idea. It just doesn't have the same effect upon your ears, your mind, and your heart. But Jesus is talking there about the resurrection of damnation, eternal separation from God. He says, I can of myself do nothing, speaking again of that inseparable unity to the Father in every way. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Every move I make, every thought I think is in sync with the Father. Every work that I do is a result of the Father's working within me, a result of His plan among men in this world. And we've talked about that all the way through this series. So here Jesus Christ gives us proof of His deity. And in the process, he clears up the confusion on these issues we've been discussing about what happens after you die. So we come to the sixth proof of his deity, which is the fact that he has the power to impart life. He says, most assuredly, in verse 24, I say to you, most assuredly, or verily, verily, again, the old King James used to say, it's the idea of this, listen up. In other words, whatever you've heard so far, you need to pay even more attention now because I'm getting closer to the real heart of the issue. Don't miss this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. What a profound statement. Here is Jesus addressing a crowd of religious leaders that has now become silent. They're like silent auditors staring and listening. The last interruption was several verses ago, and they're now listening, and now he pulls them in even closer. They have similar ideas about the afterlife, and they have different. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees differed in their beliefs. The Pharisees believed there was an afterlife. And the Sadducees basically did not. And then there are all the other manifold beliefs in the minds of all these people from sheer ignorance. And if nothing else, the fact that the Old Testament did not give the kind of clear revelation of what happens after this life that we're staring at here in red words in our Bible today. So in one sentence, Jesus sort of narrows out all the options and makes life after death a pretty simple issue. From one of the most complicated and mysterious things in all of life to think about, death, he sweeps it all together and he says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life. And now we're going way beyond the grave into eternity. Now notice he says, he who hears my word. When he says this, he's talking about more than just hearing the facts. He who hears my word. Here is Christ talking about this thing that happens to you in your heart. You hear the, the way, you hear the gospel with your ears, but when God is working on you to save your soul, to alter the course of your destiny as it were by presenting you with the way he also begins to speak to your heart Jesus says he who hears my word he's talking about hearing Christ speak in your heart and then responding to him by faith have you heard that in your heart do you know that move of God's spirit upon your heart have you heard the voice of God not audibly but have you felt his impressions on your heart in such a way you know this is different than any other feeling I've ever had in life? This has got to be God talking to me. 
You see, this is the way Christ calls men to salvation. And in John 10, 27, he said, My sheep hear my voice. They know that. And those that want to come to him and respond to him know that it's him talking and they respond in faith. Notice he says, and they follow me. So this hearing is a hearing deep inside your soul where you sense the voice of God, the touch of God upon you, and you respond in faith. It's not just believing facts. It's a deep hearing in the center of your being that brings about a response of faith. And he goes on to clarify that when he says, He who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life. Now, when he says, Believes in him who sent me, He is talking about something, again, very narrow. He's talking about believing in the God who saves men through God the Son. And it is nothing aside from that, beyond that, or short of that. That is exactly what he is saying. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. This is not some kind of vague belief like, say, the deists have. If you say, well, what is a deist? I don't know that I've ever even heard of one. Have you heard of Benjamin Franklin? Have you ever read any of his sayings? And thought, well, surely this man was in heaven after he died. I mean, after all, he's the one that coined that great phrase, I've lived my life by, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever used that one? None of you. Have you ever heard that one? Don't you get sick of hearing it now that you're born again? Well, you know what God says somewhere in the Bible. God helps those that helps themselves. Pardon me, it's not in the Bible. If we want to be correct, it's in poor Richard's almanac. And God didn't say it, Benjamin Franklin did. And Benjamin Franklin wasn't born again. Benjamin Franklin was a cold-hearted deist. You say, well... Any other guys I might know about that were deists? Yes. You ever heard the name Thomas Jefferson? He was a deist as well. He had a Bible. Oh, yes. But he tore pages out. He tore out all the things that he didn't like. Two very famous deists. You know what a deist is? I'll tell you what a deist is. Deism is this. I looked it up in Microsoft Bookshelf 95. This is a totally secular definition. Deism is the belief based solely on reason in a God who created the universe and then abandoned it, assuming no control over life, exerting no influence on natural phenomena, and giving no supernatural revelation. That's Microsoft Bookshelf definition of deism. It's the idea, I believe in God, and I believe that the old man upstairs sort of set things in motion and left us all down here to kind of work things out best we could. Hey, after all, God helps those that helps themselves. So, fella, you've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You do a good job when you stand before the old man up there. Oh, I just cringe when they say that. Well, you'll see what he's like when you get there. And he's not some old benevolent grandfather sitting in a rocking chair. Eh? With a big horn on the side. Who's going to have you come before him and he's so weak and old and feeble, long white beard flowing down the floor and out the door, that kind of thing. No, he's not like that. Some old grandfather that you're going to get there and he's going to go, well, I don't know. I, I, I think you're pretty bad down there, but I don't know. The pressure of, of deciding about your eternity is just... Anybody got some strength? Gabriel, what do we do with this man? No, it's not going to be like that. No. It's going to be that you will stand before the living God who is eternal, who's not an old man, though yes, is called the Ancient of Days in the Bible, but rather he is the eternal one. He is the one who is the Father of Jesus Christ. He is God. Christ is God. And you must believe in God the Father of Jesus Christ, who is God. That's what you believe in if you're going to have this everlasting life. So I hate to tell you if Franklin and his kite and all the nice things that he did, the electricity experiments and even his friendship with George Whitfield, if he's your hero and you follow his sayings, if you follow them too closely, you'll end up in hell where he went. Unless he repented in some way that we don't know about. And the same with Thomas Jefferson and any other deists. 
Second Corinthians 5.19 says that it, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And that word of reconciliation is exactly what Jesus is giving here. So you come to gain this eternal life by hearing the word of Christ in your soul and responding to it Responding to it in such a way that your response lines up with the revelation of who Christ is and who God the Father is as Christ has revealed Him to us. The hearing that brings salvation. And then in verse 24, further, there is this richness here of salvation. I just want to touch on it, but it's here. And it answers so much of the mystery of, of what happens to me after I die and all of that. It gets you squared away now, what Jesus has to say here. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me, notice he says, has everlasting life. This eternal life is a present thing. This salvation is a present thing. So that I already know where I'm going because I have the salvation now and I can know it now and I can live like it now. Roger Garcia was a teenager I read about. He had an incurable cancer. And knowing that his time was short, he openly began to declare to his friends his faith in Christ. And he had such an exuberance and such a conviction as he was sharing the truth that one of the boys who heard him finally exclaimed to all the guys around, he said, you know, this guy talks like he's going to live forever. Well, that's exactly right. You see, you can know in this life. He who believes in him who sent me, Jesus says, has everlasting life now. It affects you now. It breeds all this hope, all this confidence. It's now. And not only is it present, but it's complete. Look at verse 24 again. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That is to say that the salvation is complete. Nothing further to be worked out. Oh, I just thank God for that. Whatever else has to be worked out in terms of rewards and this and that, which we'll touch on in a minute, what does not have to be worked out is this. My sin past, all my sin past. My sin present today, including all of it, and my sin that I will commit in the future, whatever that may be, sin past, present, and future has all been dealt with in my salvation. Full justification gives me a position before God as though I had never sinned. It isn't like God is pretending that I never sinned. He knows that I have and that I will. But rather, taking the work of Christ at the cross as complete on my behalf, it clears up the sin issue completely. So it's a complete salvation right now. I don't add anything to it. I didn't bring anything to the table except my sin. That had to be wiped away. And I don't add anything to it. I enjoy that complete present salvation now. And frankly, I enjoy it sometimes when I'm not doing so well. When I'm doing the worst, though I want to do my best, is when I cling to it the most. And I thank God for my complete salvation now. Romans 8, 1, you know it says, There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Not now, not ever. Mrs. White had a visitor one day who talked to her about what it meant to be a Christian. And maybe you're like Mrs. White today. In the course of their conversation, Mrs. White made this comment. Well, I'm certainly trying to be a Christian. Her visitor sensing that Mrs. White had the wrong idea about salvation. Asked, Hold it. Are you trying to be Mrs. White? No, I am Mrs. White. Why would I try to be Mrs. White? Oh, I get it. And how long have you been Mrs. White? The visitor asked. Fingering the wedding band on her finger, she responded, Ever since this ring was placed on my hand, the visitor then explained that in the same way with salvation, we don't receive it by trying. Rather, it comes through trusting. And it's something that we receive freely by God's grace. Listen, if you're one of these people who is trying to be a Christian so that in the end you will go to heaven, 
May I say there is no try at this thing. There is only trust. You trust in Him. You believe upon Him. As you hear His voice in your heart, you follow after Him, and He gives you salvation free. And once He gives it, it's complete. And He's not an Indian giver, if I could use that old phrase. He doesn't give it. Sorry if we have an Indian here. We've got to be politically correct in everything today. But He's, he's not... What we used to call an old Indian giver, he doesn't give and take back. He gives it, it's present, it's now, and it's complete. You don't try to be who you are as Mr. Jones or Smith or whatever. You are, and so it is when we are God's child. I quit saying I'm trying to be a Christian a long time ago. Whenever I hear people say that, I think, oh, you poor dear. You don't understand what the Bible says about salvation. And where do you go to church and how long have you been there? And of course, I feel worst of all when it's someone who's been around here for a long time. So read my lips. There is no try. There is only trust. Make it official. If you're here and you've been here, that is the way salvation is given. Now, that is not to imply that there will be no judgment whatsoever. We will never be condemned. Condemnation, no. Judgment for the Christian, in a sense, yes. But not for your sin. But as an evaluation of what you've done with your life, God is paying very close attention to what you are doing with your life. And if you don't think it matters, you have an appointment with Him. It is, it's on His calendar. It's there. It's fixed. It's not going to be changed. It won't be erased out and rescheduled. It's there waiting for you. And He's going to evaluate your life. Every moment counts here. Every day counts here. The Bible speaks of... The judgment of the believer in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For me, we must all, we, that's us, we must all, that's all of us that are Christians, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and this is the reward seat, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, notice, whether good or bad. That is where you're going to get your rewards. And the Lord is going to sit down and evaluate all the things that you've done in this life. He's not going to talk about whether you're going to heaven or not. He's going to talk about what you have done in this life and how it will affect what you do in heaven and what your position is in heaven. So concerning the richness of our salvation that Jesus brings out here, it's present and it's complete. But one other thing I just want to point it out because it's so precious to my own heart. And that is this. It is a vital union with God. He says here, Most assuredly I say to you, in verse 24, He who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, and then this has passed from death into life. Gone from that place of total alienation from God in, with a dead soul in the darkness, Captive to sin, passed out of that into the place of life, out of the kingdom of darkness, translated into the kingdom of his dear son and light. And in this life, we now have the privilege to talk to God, to listen to God, to walk with God. I read my Bible, Enoch walked with God, then he wasn't. Took a walk one day, got so close to God's house as... Some have explained it, that God said, why don't you just come on home and stay with me? Well, he was getting on anyway, several hundred years old by that time. And he, it was a long walk home for him. So God just took him. God just took the man off the earth. But he walked and talked with God. Jacob talked and walked with God. Moses walked and talked with God. You know, before I came to know Christ, the biggest desire of my life was this. I was studying Eastern religions, and I was reading all these things. And I remember in the middle of the Upanishads, the Hindu Bible-type thing, I was reading it thinking, is, is this all there is? I mean, doesn't anybody around here want a relationship? I remember thinking that. And I stopped. I read Siddhartha and the Buddhist thing. And I, I was reading through all this and I thought, doesn't anybody care about actually talking to God? Does anybody here want more than a vibration? Does anybody here want more than being some essence forever? Does anybody here care about more than becoming part of the bright light? I couldn't, I couldn't see how 
hundreds and thousands and millions of people could settle for the reincarnation thing, coming back life after life, you know, good, bad, a cow one life, you know, a fly the next, and the cow steps on the fly, and it's a mess, you know, and you come back later. And I couldn't buy that frustration of endless lifetimes until you're assumed into nirvana, which is some kind of a life essence force glowing existence. And I thought, doesn't anybody care about knowing God? And that nod at me. I wanted to talk to him. The biggest question on my mind became this. Is God there and does he speak? And then of course, Francis Schaeffer answers the question with his book, God is there, not silent. And that's what I found out. To me, one of the greatest things in my life, the sin question is dealt with. It's done. One of the greatest things in my life is I have passed out of death into life and that life is an eternal life that has given me a vital union with God right now today. I walk with God. I talk with God. God walks with me. God talks to me. He doesn't show up in my car and speak to me audibly, good morning, how's your coffee? He doesn't do that. And I shy away from people that act like he does. But he speaks to my heart. You know, and speaking of Enoch and Moses and all these guys, do you realize what we have in this book? God has written down so many of his thoughts for us. I have a book of God's thoughts and things that God has to say to me and all of us that David didn't have and Moses didn't have and Enoch didn't have and Noah didn't have. Noah, 120 years building the ark by faith in a place where it never rained. He couldn't end up his day, you know, after the hecklers were out there following him around, coming up the ladder. You know, he's up there putting pitch and turn the side of the boat, and they're all lined up on the ladder. Hey, you really think it's going to rain, you dumb old coot? What are you doing out here anyway? Hey, the centuries are catching up with you, fella. You know, 600 years, enough to make anybody a little batty. What are you building this big boat for? See, when we go through that kind of stuff, we can come home and open the Bible... And sit down, oh Lord, man, what a day. I'm so sick of all the detractors and persecution. And God is getting to me. And we can open this up. And we can be refreshed and renewed. They did not have that. We can walk with God now. We can talk with God now. He's given us a full book of His thoughts and His feelings and all this revelation. I hope this is a rich thing to you. I think it's one of the greatest tragedies in all of life that would be this, for you to be a Christian today and not enjoy a vital union with Christ, but to be caught up in the flow of the world. You know, it was Matthew Mead in 1656 who coined the phrase, any dead fish can float downstream. That isn't some secular deal. That's the quotation of the heart of a Puritan man, Christian man, who understood that dead people flow downstream like dead fish with the course of this world and living Christians alone can swim against the tide in the course of this world and do it and enjoy it with fellowship with God. I do pray today that you're not floating down the stream with all the dead fish out there. If you're a Christian, you have passed from death into life and you have a vital union with Christ. Well, I'd love to stay with that, but I must move on. There is more. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll stay and we'll make it another. And I promised I would finish. So here is this great salvation. And then in verse 25, we've seen the hearing that brings salvation, the richness of salvation, all of this tied to Christ's ability to give life. But then more specifically is the power of Christ here to give salvation in verse 25. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming. And now is. Here is... God in a body looking at the eternal perspective in a way that we can't see it. The hour is coming and now is. It's been coming leading up to this. Now is that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, this is a reference to what we talked about a few minutes ago. You hear the voice of God in your heart. This is not so much a reference to raising Lazarus from the dead or the widow's son at Nain or those things, so it will be included. This is a reference to dead souls being quickened by Christ and responding to that quickening as they hear His voice and respond in faith 
and those who hear will live. Why? Here is the proof of his deity. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And so there it is, the power to give life. The sixth proof of his deity here in this passage. That leads us to the final proof, which is the seventh, his power to exercise judgment over all mankind. Find this in verses 27 here down through 30. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the difference tonight between temporary and permanent? If I said, please define temporary for me, could you? If I said, what is permanent? See, temporary refers to something that can be changed, right? Permanent refers to something that cannot be changed. As we come into this section, I want you to realize this. You have to know the difference between permanent and temporary to appreciate what's coming next. Because in front of us is God's judgment. And the central point is that God's judgment will establish a permanent distinction among men. Not temporary, but permanent. Some will enter into resurrection life and others will enter into the resurrection of damnation or condemnation, as Jesus calls it. Look at verse 27 of John 5. He says, And the Father has given him all authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now, without spending too much time on that Son of Man... That is to say, because I've been here, because I know the limitations of the human frame, because I know the weakness of being human, because I know the attacks of Satan which are without number, because I go through them as every other human does, I will be able to judge with the authority, all the authority of God and all the experience of a normal human being because I've been here, Nobody's going to stand before Christ and say this. Well, look, you're God. You can't relate to what I go through. Now, you've got to be fair with me. Because you've sat up here on your throne all these eons and endless ages. You don't know what it's like to be human. You create us and leave us down there. Now, give me a break. You've got to understand what I went through. No. The Son of Man understands completely because he was in all points tempted as we without sin sin apart never giving in to the temptation but going through all the things we go through weak and tired in the sun he sits at the well in the gospel of John all these things hungry feeling the different effects of age everything in the sense of a man so that is why he is so qualified to judge as well as being God he knows every thought of your heart he knows every intention of every man, every motive of every man, every act of every man, every deed, every work, every pattern, every habit, every day, every week, every year. Being God, he knows it all. He has to be God to judge and know it all. And he has to be man in the sense of son of man to be able to relate so wonderfully and fairly so that he says then, do not marvel at this. You know, I just see their faces. Only a few moments ago, he says, listen up, I say assuredly to you. Now they're paying attention. Then he starts talking about how he can give life and all of this. And their faces are just full of expression, but they're still silent. No interruptions here. And then he's looking at them. He says, hey, don't marvel at this. It gets even heavier from here. He says, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation or damnation. He says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. It becomes very clear very fast that it's not all over when men die. If anything is clear in this passage, that is clear. And whether men like it or not, whether women like it or not, they will have to come forth from their graves at the last day to stand before Christ's bar and be judged by Him. So that none can escape His summons, His voice calls for them, and they all must obey. 
And when men rise again, they will not all rise in the same condition. There will be two different classes. Now, Jesus is not giving the details of time. He's just stating the fact that it will happen in general. And we don't have the time to get into the details of all the time of when the righteous will raise and all of that. But after the tribulation, after Christ comes back, sets up his thousand-year reign on earth, then the wicked will rise and they will come before the great white throne and they will be judged. For the rest of us, when we die, we go to be with Christ. Those of us that know Him, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And then there is the resurrection of the bodies. The idea here is that everybody gets raised from the dead, whether saved or unsaved. Saved or raised into eternal life, and the unsaved are raised in a body. So that God gathers all the particles from everywhere, whether you were eaten by a shark, whether you died of old age in a hospital bed, whether you died and they buried you on a farm and someone came and hundreds of years later they planted tomatoes and you became part of a tomato, whatever. God can gather all those particles if He can create the heavens and the earth. He can gather it all together and do what He wants, supernaturally charge it, change it, and give everybody a new body. So there's the resurrection of the saved. That's the one category. Those who have done good will come to resurrection of life. Now, interesting phrase, huh, to be used by Jesus. Those who have done good. Those are the ones going into this resurrection life. Now what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying you get saved by what you do good? Of course not. This is not the means of being saved. This is the marks of having been saved. Now listen very carefully. This is very critical. He's talking about the good that issues forth from the Christ life within you. Anybody can come to church. You can be a Jehovah Witness, a Mormon, Baha'i faith, whatever. And you can go to church and be involved and be positive and help out. Anyone can do that. The world round. He's talking about good that comes out of your life habitually because His life is in you. And He knows the difference. And when you have an honest human heart, so does that individual. Those who have done good, it's the marks of being saved. James 2.20 says, But I want you to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. That means faith bears fruit. Is there fruit in your life? Could someone look at your life and sum it up by saying, She went about doing good. Could they say that about you? He went about doing good as a result of Christ's life within him. You know, I knew him before he was converted, but I'll tell you, afterwards, what a difference. You know, when the apostle was speaking about Christ, he summed up his life with these words. He said in Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good. Summary of Christ's life. What was the fruit in his life of God's life within him? It was this. He went about doing good. Now, Jesus then, in his own teaching, says those who have done good will go into resurrection life. He sums up The life of an individual he has saved by saying, you could sum up the whole life by looking at them, backing up, getting the big picture. Here is a person that went about doing good because I lived in them. So the summary of my life is the same as the summary of their life in that sense. And then you go into resurrection life. I want to say this to you today. If there is no fruit in your life, I want to say with all the love I can, but with all the seriousness, is if there's no fruit in your life, you have absolutely no right to claim redemption. None. I mean, give me your argument. If there is no fruit there of going about doing good, prompted by the Holy Spirit, motivated by the Holy Spirit, then what right do you have to claim redemption? Where is your evidence? That is exactly James' argument. Faith without works is dead. As a body with no spirit inside of it is dead, the spirit that causes it to move and to be animated is dead, so faith without works is dead. So he says, you show me your salvation by your life, and I'll believe you. You're not saved by that, but that is always the evidence of God living within you. Very serious.
Very serious. And then for those that have it, they go into resurrection life. It is just a wonderful summary of what is there for the Christian. Now, then there is the resurrection of the unsaved. Look at verse 29. And so they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Paul the Apostle echoed this in Acts twenty-four fifteen. He said, there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, speaking of men's bodies, will awake some to everlasting life, and then concerning the Christ rejectors to shame and everlasting contempt. So, with the words of Jesus, with the words of Daniel... You have in the Bible the teaching of everlasting separation from God. It is the teaching of an eternal hell. Something you don't hear too much about these days. It's not generally part of the marketing plan. That the church growth people and the churches that want to grow so much and be so popular these days. And they interview and put their ads in the paper and all this. Generally, talk of hell is not part of the marketing strategy to have a, quote, successful church in these days. But let me tell you something. It was part of the preaching of Jesus. It was part of the preaching of Daniel. In Jude 22, it says, Of some have compassion, making a difference, but let them know. And of others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, let them know. If they're soft, be loving and tell them of what awaits an unsaved person. If they're hardened, be straightforward with them and tell them what they need to hear. That if they don't repent, they're going to burn in hell. Oh, that's not user-friendly. No, it's not user-friendly. That's hot stuff. And there are some ministers who never mention anything about hell. Like I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be sent to a place which is not polite to mention. Oh, get out of the pulpit. Come on. Gee. Preach the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. And I fear that some might be listening today that are on their way to hell. On their way to hell. Because you've heard the voice of Christ in your heart and you haven't responded. J.C. Ryle said the saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the midst of warnings and invitations. I hope that's not you today. But you know, the great thing about the grace of God today is maybe it's been you. Maybe you know it's you. But you can change all that today by opening your heart to Jesus, welcoming Him to be the Lord of your life, to save you, asking Him for His gift, asking Him for His life, Asking Him for that life that will work in you, in your weakness, being strong, to go about and do good in His name, not because you're good in and of yourself, but because He's so good and He's so powerful within you, you can't help it. So you become someone who goes around and people say, Boy, you've just done so many great things. You, your mother must be proud of you. She just says, Raise the finest child. And you're just, I've never seen such a good person. And you say, No, Jesus is good and Jesus has done it through me. I give Him the glory. And they say, Oh, come on. Don't you know God helps those that help themselves? Take a little credit for this thing. And you can say, No. God helps and saves those that are totally unable to save themselves. So whatever good you've been seeing in my life, I give God the glory and you ought to give it to Him too. And you live like that. By the power of God. And you can come and make that change today. It's up to you. You can do it right now, right where you sit. Just surrender your heart to God. Otherwise, you're facing eternal condemnation. Bible speaks of reserved seats in hell. You know that? Oh, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's for his saved ones. For all those that reject him, there's a place being reserved as well. It says in Second Peter 2.17, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried about with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. I would not want to have God look at my life today and say, Well, I've got a seat reserved for him in the middle of darkness forever. If that's you, you can change it. And if you don't, it'll be permanent when you get there.
You won't be able to reverse it then. You can reverse it now. Nobody ever spoke in stronger terms of hell than Jesus. So much we could say about it. But the issue is this. Have you responded to his quickening voice in your life? And do you hear it now? And if you do now, then respond now. Don't put it off another minute. And when it comes your time to die, you can know where you're going. And you can know even before it's your time to die. And you can know fellowship with God now. And all the mystery can be taken out. I heard about an old man who was dying. And he said, oh, please, could you turn off the lights? It's so bright in here. It's just hurting my eyes. And they felt bad, so they ran and turned off all the lights in the house. And then, suddenly, out of the darkness, he started shouting, Oh, it's so beautiful in here. Who turned on the lights? He said, you know, I like it after all. It's so bright. It's so lovely. Oh, leave them on. And then he said, you know... It's the light of heaven, I see. And whew, he died. Everybody stood there with their mouths hanging open in the dark as this saint went out in the light. You know what happened? As he entered into resurrection glory, even there, still in his bed, God began to shine the light from the other side and gave him a taste of where he was going. I know where I am going. Do you? I know what's going to happen to me after I die. Do you? Well, you can know, and you know what will happen either way now. It's up to you from here what you're going to do with this truth that's been delivered to you. Jesus Christ speaks inside of your heart. You must respond in faith and hear him. And all those that hear his voice and follow after him will have everlasting life, will live. Make sure you're one of them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work of your Spirit that causes us to hear the voice of Christ deep within. Lord, for those that don't know you here today, may this be the day that they come into that vital relationship with you. Move among us by your power to those listening and turn them from their sin to follow Christ. And we will be careful to give you all the glory as we go on to see the changed lives. And Lord, may it be said of us, because of your great work within us, that there is one who has gone about doing good. And Lord, if we have wasted our days in the Christian life and not walked in close intimacy with you and those good works were lacking, we ask you to forgive us today, Lord, and to lead us in the way everlasting, that way of fruitfulness that brings much Glory to your name, Father. For we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.